If you have your Bibles, your tablets, your phones, Hebrews chapter 4. Hey, we encourage everybody in our church at Calvary Chapel here to bring a Bible, to have a Bible on your phone, on your tablet, to follow along as we read and study. We study the Word of God here chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through its entirety, systematically through the Word of God. And so we really feel like the formula is so that we'll grow in Christ and we'll grow in our relationship and our walk with Christ. So um, you guys got to, can you guys excuse me for one second? Ashley. It was so weird. When I saw you this morning, I didn't think like, oh man, Ashley's here visiting. I just, that like old hat, like you're just here. And it wasn't until you got on stage and you started singing, it didn't even dawn on me then, like, oh, Ashley's here. It was like, oh, Ashley moved. And she's not like, it just was so weird. I was like, I saw you back there and everything. Didn't think twice about it until you got on stage. And I was like, oh my God. All right, sorry, I had to tell you that. I was having a moment up here and Lydia's looking at me. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like talking to myself. And I'm like <laughs> having a moment about it. So. Anyway, sorry. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, back, back with you. Um, like, like I said, Hebrews chapter 4 is, um, it's a powerhouse of scriptures, and it leads in and where we left off in chapter 3. There's something that wasn't covered in chapter 3, and, I, and because of time, and we had a lot to cover last week, I had to pick a few things that um, doctrinally that I had to leave out of chapter 3, but I want to introduce it because um, it's very important moving forward. And as we move forward in the book of Hebrews, um, one of the, the questions that we get, I had a lady that came to church one time, and she said to me, the first thing she said to me was, can you lose your salvation? And I, and I said, why do you ask that? And she said, well, my, my pastor at my last church, and I was leaving, and I was, I was telling him I was moving and going to a new church, he said, when you get there, he said, the most important thing is ask the pastor where you're going if he believes you can lose your salvation or not. And that'll tell you if it's a good church or not. Now, I think that's a little silly, to be honest. Um, but, but again, it is a question that we, we often get. And I'll tell you, it's one of these debates in Christian circles that it's what we call a circular argument. Those that believe you, you cannot lose your salvation, they, they believe... Um, there, was a, there was a church, and the pastor believed strongly and taught that you cannot lose your salvation. And he had, a, he had an assistant pastor, and his assistant pastor was doing ministry in the church for over 10 years. And after 10 years, he had a falling away. He renounced his faith. He ended up in, in a, a homosexual relationship and, and disavowed God or belief in God. And so they asked the pastor, did your assistant pastor of 10 years did he lose his salvation because he's practicing a lifestyle and, and making decisions, confessions, that the Bible says that he will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the pastor's answer is no, he didn't lose his salvation. You can't lose your salvation. He never had it. He never had it in the first place. He was faking or whatever. And so and then those that believe you can lose your salvation may look at that situation and he was walking with God and he lost it. But again, there's no right answer. There's no solving that dilemma because it's a circular argument. And whatever side of the argument you land on, you, you run yourself in a circle. So um, one of the things that's very clear is that Jesus said to the Father, and, and he's praying in John 17, it's words in red, and Jesus talking to the Father, he says, Father, of all those that you've put in my hands, of these I've lost none. So when Jesus is praying to the Father, you can count that as doctrine. He has lost none. And, and, and so if you're saved, the, the, my theology and the way I understand it and see it 
And again, somebody could argue with me in a circle, and that's why if you come up to me and you say, can you lose your salvation, I'm going to tell you to go talk to, to, to Matt, and you and Matt can, can hash it out, because I'm not going to spend time on, on, the, on the discussion with you. But again, it, it, Jesus said, these that you've put in my hands, I've lost none. So, so in that case, if you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. But here's what we see scripturally. And here's what's going to be introduced in the book of Hebrews. And the reason why I bring it up is because he introduces it in chapter 4. By the time you get to chapter 6, there's a verse that is very, very, you've got to wrestle with it in this subject of can you lose your salvation. So here's, here's the way that, that I see it, that I see it biblically, is I'm never worried about God's grip on me. God's never going to let go of me. He's got a firm hold of me, and Jesus said, those that you've put in my hands, of these, I've lost none. And do you remember what else Jesus said in that, in that prayer? He lost one. He's, he confessed to the Father that he lost one. Who was the one he lost? He said, except the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed me. So he, he, he says that, but of none. But, but what you see is men like this assistant pastor who were walking with Jesus and serving God and loving God, and then later in life, they make decisions, and, and now they're no longer walking with God. My pastor, to explain it, Chuck Smith, he would always say, actually, my pastor's pastor, my pastor is Gerald, his, his pastor, Chuck Smith, the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel, he would say, once saved, always saved, unless you walk away. And that's the way I see it. That's my theology around losing your salvation. You can't lose it. It's not like the set of car keys where, where you misplaced it. Can you sin yourself out of your salvation. I don't believe you can. I, I don't believe that, 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 that you just sin yourself out of salvation, but I believe you can walk away from it. You can renounce it. You can turn from it. And, and that's why we, we see, now, now, as we're getting into this, we're going to talk about it, but um, let me just, because I didn't, I didn't cover this last week, but I feel like I, when I'm moving on to four, I didn't want to leave it undone. So in chapter three, I just want to point out two quick things. Look at chapter three and verse six. But Christ as our son over his own house, whose house we are, everybody. Now, this is why it's important that you guys are reading your Bibles as I'm doing this, okay? So it's if we, so it's an if we clause. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. And then look at verse um, number 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So it would seem that we have this if we condition in the Bible. Now I'm going to let that go for today. And when we get to chapter 6 of Hebrews, it's going to come up again. And more in our face. Like we kind of pass through that very quickly and you could miss it. But it's going to be dealt with to the point where you'll, you'll read it and you'll say this sounds a lot like it's saying you can lose your salvation. This reads like you can lose your salvation. And again, I would say you can't lose your salvation, but you could leave it. You could renounce your faith. You could be saved today and make a decision just like you made a decision to be a Christ follower. You no one and longer follow Christ. And you've left the umbrella of God's protection and blessing over your life. Amen? All right, now we get into chapter 4. I want everybody to look at your neighbor and say, rest. We kind of use the word chill, huh? Look at your neighbor and say, chill. Okay, I should probably make you say rest or chill 11 times because 11 times in, in Hebrews chapter 4, we get the word or the idea or the term rest. 
So chapter 4 is all about rest. Now last week, if you were here last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the nation of Israel when they left Egypt and, and they went and 40 years in the wilderness and then, they, and then God's anger was aroused against them and God said, you will not enter the promised land. And for 40 years, there was a 40-year funeral march and the Bible says, till their corpses laid, um, lay dead, lay on the ground and the next generation, 19 years old, and under went in, only Joshua and Caleb. And in chapter 3, it tells us unequivocally why they weren't able to go in and were warned. Now, if you remember, I'm not going to pull the slides up, but in my introduction slides to Hebrew, I showed you, I gave you a slide that said all of the warnings that are given to us in Hebrews, and we'll go through those warnings. And the warning last week, and we get two new warnings this week, the warning last week was don't be like the children of Israel who for unbelief were not able to go into the promised land. And, and, and the message last week again was believe, 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 be believing. Jesus told Thomas, remember we ended with that. And Thomas, doubting Thomas. And Jesus said to doubting Thomas, Thomas, don't be unbelieving but believing, believe, believe. And that was the message. And so Paul spends chapter 3 to encourage you and encourage me. And, and part of the, the, the warnings that we find, we studied the book of Jude not that long ago. And the entire book of Jude is this hardcore warning against you and I where God is saying, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at this. Look at that. I judged. I dealt with these people in their sins. I deal with sin. It's not, you know, people say, well, God is lo so long-suffering. God is slack concerning his promises. And, and, and we just, you know, and we continue to get away with it and continue. And, and there's no fear of God, a healthy fear of God. Now, now, we're not supposed to fear God in, in a negative way like we fear the boogeyman or, or Jason or Friday the 13th or Freddy Krueger. That's not the idea of the fear of God. But do you realize the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom? That, that, that the fear of God is necessary? Jesus said, don't fear man. They, sure, they can shoot you or stab you or kill you and harm your flesh. Jesus said, fear God who is control of your eternal soul. And that there's this healthy fear that we have knowing that, that, that God has control of your eternal soul. That should scare you. You, you know the number one um, repeated tattoo in, in the United States? Only God can judge me. Tattooed more times than any other. I don't know, it's real popular in certain circles. Only God can judge me. Uh, for, I'm from L.A., so I know a lot of the homies in L.A. love that tattoo, you know. Only God could judge me, I say. And I'm like, you, that should scare you. That, that should scare you. You're right. You're absolutely right. Only God can judge you. And guess what? God is going to judge you. Now, good thing for you, God is a loving judge, and he's a fair judge, and he's a just judge, and he wants what's best for you. But, but there needs to be in your life and in my life a healthy fear of God. Amen? And, and again, that's, that's the warning in three. That's the warning in four. I'm not making this stuff up, you guys. I'm not just coming off the top and, you know, I didn't sit around this week trying to come up with an idea of a sermon this week. I'm, I'm trying to study the Word of God and tell you what it says. And that's what it's saying in Hebrews, is that we should have a fear of God. There's warnings against these things. God judged the nation of Israel, and He's going to judge us. Now, a little background moving forward, because the whole idea is, is still carried in this one idea that we're going to cover today. And the idea is rest. God wants you to enter His rest. And these are the reasons why the nation of Israel didn't enter their rest was because of unbelief. So don't be unbelieving. But, but the point of it all is what? Rest. Okay, if you don't know the answer to the question today, you're in the remedial class in the back. The answer is rest. Okay? 
wretch. So when I, uh, two, two answers. No matter what, if I ask a question in church, just say Jesus. And it, nine, times out of, nine times out of ten, it'll be right, okay? So let's try this. And the other answer is rest. Okay, what is the whole book of Hebrews about? Jesus. Okay, you can't get that wrong. That's what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. That Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. Okay, what is Hebrews chapter 4 about? Rest. And if you said Jesus still, you still got it right, okay? So you can't get it wrong with Jesus. But the answer today is rest. So it's all about rest, 11 times in this chapter. Now, turn with me, if you will, really quick. 1 Corinthians, we're going to do a little bit of homework, and then we'll get up to chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 has a title over it. What does the title over 1 Corinthians chapter 10 say? Old Testament examples. What did we study in Hebrews chapter 3? Old Testament examples, okay? So if you look at verse number 11, it says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. <clears throat> so I, I didn't read the first 10 verses, but if you got time today, read the first 10 verses, and Paul is rehearsing the nation of Israel, and then in verse 11, he says, all of these things happened as an example for you and I for our admonition. That's for your warning, for your instruction, for your direction, for, um, you know, marching orders moving forward to warn us, to, to teach us, to show us, okay? So the admonition is let's look at the children of Israel. Now, one of the things you need to understand biblically is that the children of Israel, it's a picture. It's a, it's a perfect, biblical, godly picture designed by God to model. Do you know what it models? It models you and me, exactly. It models Christian living. So when they were in Egypt, they were under bondage. Before you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were in the world, you were in Egypt, you were under bondage, you were in slavery. And then they, they came out of Egypt from the Passover, and the Passover represents the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ on the doorposts. On the doorpost. So the, the 10th plague of Egypt, the, the, the Passover, Jesus passes over, the death angel passes over, and the death of the firstborn. So when that happens and the blood of Jesus comes, that's, that's representation of being delivered, receiving Jesus coming in. And then they cross through the Red Sea on dry land. And the Red Sea is a picture of water baptism. So you've been born again. You've been born again in the blood. And you've made the first decision as a new believer. It's something most of us will do as new believers. We've been water baptized. And then we enter the wilderness. Now, the wilderness represents that part of our lives where we're, we're, we're born again, we've been water baptized, and we've begun a process. It's the long process that we talk about in our church a lot, and I try to explain and help us understand. It's, called, it's a big Bible word called sanctification, and it simply means being set apart. And sanctification is a process that God is changing you to become more like Jesus. So when you first got saved and you first received Jesus in your heart, you were far from Christ. Once you became a believer, you asked Jesus in your heart, you committed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you committed to, to putting yourself in a position of every day, everybody say every day, not just on Sundays for an hour and a half, every day of your life becoming more like Jesus. That's sanctification. So in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years, you should be more like Jesus than you were in the beginning. So this wilderness period begins that process of sanctification, being set apart, becoming more like Christ. Then after the, this wilderness, because in this sanctification process, a lot of these people died. 
And a lot of them had unbelief and they struggled in this process. And you see that in Christian living. And, and, and not all of them got to enter the promised land. The next step after the wilderness is a body of water. What was it? Do you remember? The Jordan River. And they had to cross over the Jordan River to go into the promised land. And God said in the promised land, he calls it biblically, and in Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to cover it, he says, enter my rest. So, so you go through the Jordan River, and this is representation of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, John the Baptist of Jesus said, when Jesus comes, he will baptize you in water and fire. What is the fire that John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize you in? Jesus tells you in John 14, 15, and 16. He says, I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It tells us in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, that, they, that the, when the church began at Pentecost, that God poured out his spirit and they began to speak in other tongues and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's the third experience that you have in your life as a Christ follower. It's necessary for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like taking a garden hose and putting it in a bucket and eventually the bucket is full and then it begins to overflow and affect its environment around it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is already in you. The day you became saved, the Holy Spirit entered you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Before you were saved, the Holy Spirit came alongside you and was convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then you received and you said yes to the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came inside of you. Yet the Bible says there's a third experience that you need to have, that you want to have, that you get by asking. Do you remember the story when Jesus is talking and he says, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, who's going to throw your son a rock and say, here, gnaw on this, kid? You earthly fathers know how to give your children good gifts. How much more will the heavenly father give the gift to those that ask? And then he tells us exactly what the gift is so we don't have to guess. It's the Holy Spirit. So how do we receive that third experience with the Holy Spirit? We ask. And listen, it's necessary. Christians, believers, you need to be, you want to be filled in the Holy Spirit. People have had bad experiences and other churches and weird ideas, and sometimes they're afraid of this idea of what would happen if I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's very necessary. So crossing the Jordan River is, 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 a, is, a, is a picture, is a type in the Bible of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being baptized. Now, when you get into the promised land, what do you think the promised land represents? Heaven would be like the natural conclusion, except for there's a problem. What happened in the prom what was in the promised land when they got there? It was full of battles and of giants and of wars and, and of conquest. Listen, that's not heaven. Heaven is rest, but yet the Bible says, yet the Bible says in Hebrews 4, the whole concept is, is enter into my rest. And God and Paul is pleading, or the writer of Hebrews is pleading with us. I don't want you to miss the rest that the children of Israel missed. I don't want you to miss the rest that is offered to you in Christ. So please, please, as a Christ follower, this is a gift. God has this for you. It's rest. And yet it's talked about in multiple ways. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3, it's going to talk about that rest where there's multiple facets. I, don't even, I can't even do it justice, you guys. I'm barely scratching the surface of what it is. Dig into it for yourselves, and there is so much meat right here. But the rest is the promised land, and that's the life in Christ. That's, being that's, that's, that's living in the barrel. You're born again. You're being sanctified. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're, you're living and you're experiencing the rest that Jesus promises. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28? He said, come to me. Ooh, somebody got it. He said, come to me, 
all you who are heavy burdened and laden, weak paraphrase, <laughs> and I, come on somebody, I will do what? What did Jesus promise you in Matthew 11? He said, I'll give you rest. How many of you guys are experiencing the rest of the Lord in your lives? Are you resting in the Lord or are you struggling? Be honest, are you, are you bogged down in the mud? I think, I think my life, if I'm being honest, it's a little bit of both. I think I go through seasons where I struggle and where I experience the joy and the rest of the Lord. And I know it's offered to me. I know, I know I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. I have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm functioning in the, in the promised land. I know there's battles. But you know, the battles were never a deterrent for rest. And, and, and life is, is work, right? Being a Christian, being a Christ follower, there's work. There's work to be done. It's not the rest that, that we're going to get in heaven. That's a different level of rest. That is also rest that God's going to give you, and that's coming. And, and in heaven, there's no battles and there's no wars. But yet God's word, check it out. This is, this is the beauty of it. God's word says that, that on the other side of the Jordan is his rest, and yet during his, and so it's, it's kind of like, like counterintuitive almost, but it's not. Because God says that in the promised land is my rest, and yet there's still battles there. There's still giants there. There's still wars to be fought there. There's still struggles to be had there. So, so the beauty is that, yes, I told James and Carl that God doesn't keep them from the fire, but God's going to go into the fire with them. God's not going to keep us from the fight or from the fire, but yet we can experience God's rest and his joy. You know, when Jesus talks about heaven and he says, I'm going to say to you on that day, enter into, it's a different word that's used. It says the joy of the Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's heaven. This life ain't heaven. If anybody ever tells you, you know, we're in the millennial reign or we're in some stage of heaven, I'm like, oh, uh, that's not what I read in the Bible. I hope this ain't heaven. It'd be the farthest thing from heaven. Do you realize this is the... This is the closest to hell you'll ever get if you're going to heaven. And, then if, you're, and if you're not going to heaven, this is the closest to, to heaven you'll ever get. And that'd be, that's a sad state. All right, let's actually read something. In Psalms. Yeah, I got to do it. I got to do it. Oh, here, here's the last thing in the promised land. Um, and then I'm going to read a quick scripture in Psalm. Um, um, and then we're going to get to Hebrews 4. So check it out. Here's another beauty. Here's another thing I want to encourage you guys with. Hopefully you find this really encouraging. So the, 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 the children of Israel is a model of us, right? It's a model of New Testament Christian living. It's a perfect, it's an identical picture of Christian living in the New Testament, played out in, in the lives of millions of people in the Old Testament. It's, how, it's, it's what we call um, the providence of God, the supernatural providence of God that plays out your life and my life through the life story of millions of people in the Old Testament. And everything they went through is a perfect picture of New Testament living in Jesus. But here's what God's Word says. God's Word says that when you enter the promised land, there's going to be giants and, and there's going to be battles, and, and it is called His rest. But this is the promise that he gave the children of Israel. What did he tell them? What did he tell them about the promised land? He said, everywhere that you place the sole of your foot, I have given you as your possession. C can you imagine? I'd be like running through Disneyland. It's mine. It's all mine. 
<laughs> something, I don't know. Have you gone to mountains? Everywhere. Everywhere you place the sole of your foot, I've given you. Do you realize you have that promise? And again, as it was a promise to those in the Old Testament, it's a picture of your life today. And God says to enter his rest, to be filled with his Holy Spirit, to take ground. The Bible says that, that Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not an offensive weapon. How can a gate that's a defensive weapon prevail against the kingdom of heaven? The only way a gate prevails is if we don't knock it down. And so we're called to knock it down, knock the gates of hell down. And God says, I've given you everywhere that you set your foot. You want to do something awesome for Jesus? Step out. Put your foot in the sand. Put your foot in the water and it'll part. Put your foot in the river and it'll stop. Wherever you set the, the sole of your foot, God says, I've given you as an inheritance. And that's the Christian living of taking ground, taking back some ground from the world. And again, as this world is losing their ever-living minds, and Satan is very, very, very actively trying to turn us into and effectively turning us into Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, it's sad and it's heartbreaking, but I have to tell you, there's a part of me that just says, it, it's exciting because Je that means Jesus is coming back. Listen, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And exactly what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is what's happening in our world today. I saw a Homeland Security person being interviewed by Dennis Prager this week. And this Homeland Security um, guy, he said this. He said, five years ago, I was arresting people for putting out um, this material to children. I would put them in jail for having this material. The same material that five years ago I was arresting uh, uh, pedophiles and predators for having, they're teaching it to your kids in school. Same material. That's what this guy said. Crazy. Eh? You guys should check that out. It's on Dennis Prager. It's on PragerU this week. That guy's interview and his story. I forget the number. I wrote it down somewhere. I think it was, oh, don't quote me, 83,000 undocumented children entered the United States last month. And guess how many of them that we know where they are, even know where they are? Zero. 83,000 undocumented children entered the United States. The United States is the number one consumer of, of, of child sexual material. And we just released 83,000 children into the United States with, with, with no record of where they are or what happened to them. Okay, we've losing our ever-living minds. But listen, God says everywhere you put the so foot of your soul that I have given you as possession, we can fight back. We can take back. We're called to be salt and light. And we have to stand up in this generation and be salt and light, right? And stand for what's right and stand with truth. But listen, I, I can encourage you knowing that God's promise goes before you. You're, you're in the promised land. You've entered his rest. And everywhere you put the sole of your foot, God is going to give you. Let's start asking God for some opportunities. Let's start asking God how we can make a difference. Where can we be a voice? What can we do to practically make a difference on some of these things? You know, one of the reasons I, I even get nervous in my own heart and, and soul of even bringing some of this stuff up is because I feel like if I'm going to tell you about these problems, I should also be able to give you a solution. And I just don't have one. And I've been asking God. I've been praying. I've been saying, God, we know there's these things. We know we're supposed to be a light. But what are we supposed to be doing practically? Where do we need to be fighting? Where do we need to be stepping out? And so you guys can join me in seeking the Lord for that. And asking God, what do we need to be doing? What can we be doing practically besides, I mean, obviously speaking out against it. And saying that we're going to stand up for, for, for truth and righteousness. And that we're going to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of salvation to those who believe. That, that's the easy part. We can do that. And the day they're going to come and arrest me for doing it, 
I'm going to have a prison ministry from the inside. And then you guys will get up and preach until they arrest every last one of you, right? All right, we're never going to get to Hebrews 4 today. That's okay. <laughs> hey, I'm in, I'm in Psalms 95 really quickly, and this is, again, just sets up Hebrews 4. For he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, this is quoted in Hebrews 3 and 4. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, as, the, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. It's talking about that whole story and how they hardened their hearts and they died and they couldn't go in the promised land. In verse 9, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my works. I told you, the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt saw more miracles than any, any other people group in human history. If you think or you want God to do and show you miracles, I can just tell you it's not going to work. Miracles are not what change people's lives and not what bring people to faith. These, this group of people saw more miracles. Could you imagine just half, just a quarter of the things that they saw and experienced in their lives? From the ten plagues, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the Egyptian army being drowned, to, to being led by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, manna appearing on the, on the ground every morning, quail flying the knee high. I mean, the amount of miracles that they saw God do. Moses going up on the mountain, coming down with the Ten Commandments written by the hand of God, and on and on and on and on. And yet they still didn't believe. Do you remember the, when, when Lazarus was going to, um, in, in, in Jesus is telling the story of Abraham's bosom, and Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man was in the hell side, and Lazarus was in the heaven side. And the, and the rich man said to Lazarus, go and tell my brothers. Tell them not to come to this place. And Jesus gives an answer, and he said, even if the dead come back to life, they won't listen. They have the law and the prophets, let them hear them, because those are the things that will change lives. Those other things won't work. Jesus said they have the law and the prophets. What is that? It's the word of God. You have the word of God, and that's the power to change lives is the word of God. Now, miracles are cool. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to see some miracles. Love to have an angel show up in here with a big flaming sword. and we get. To, I mean, there's an angel here standing behind me with a big flaming sword. I'd love to just get to be able to see him, you know, like Gehazi and, and Elijah, and just like, Lord, open their eyes, show them the guy behind me, you know. It'd be kind of cool, but I don't know how much it changed lives. So then in verse 11, it says, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Okay, we got the idea of rest. Let's look at Hebrews 4, chapter verse number 1. Now I'm in that speed-up mode where I lose concentration. I just talk fast because I want to cover a lot, and I don't have no time. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his, everybody, one more time. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So we've already talked about having a healthy fear of God. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Jesus said that the word of God is going to be planted on the, the hearts of men. It's in the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, the seed represents the word of God. And the word of God is being spread out. And in some hearts, it produces fruit and does what it, what it was sent out for. And, and so here he's saying they had the word, but they didn't believe it by faith. And it says in, in um, Galatians 2.8, Galatians 2.8, Galatians 2.8, you are saved by grace that not of you are saved by grace through faith 
that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. For, your, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now listen, in the facet of the, the context of rest that God wants for you in Hebrews chapter 4, Again, I told you we're only scratching the first surface so deep, so much stuff going on. But I want you to understand there's another idea of the idea of rest here. All through this chapter, it's rest from the idea that you have to work your way to heaven. Rest. The work is done in Jesus. Your salvation is complete in Jesus. There's nothing you can do to take away or add from what Jesus already did for you. And so just rest. You don't have to work your way into heaven. You don't have to earn your salvation. That's the idea of rest. And it's also in here where I said it's multifaceted. Rest is in the promised land. Rest is in heaven. The, the idea also of rest is that, you know, here's the thing that we do as Christians. And, and I'm over super guilty of it. It's a process that I've understood theologically and doctrinally for 25 years, but I am still struggle with practicing it. But it's very hard to get away from the idea that I perform as a Christian. So, for example, um, I'm, 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 I'm going to preach a, a men's conference in California in September. And there's like 400 men that come, and it's a big deal, and it's my home church. And, you know, I get nervous going, I want to do the best I can do. I want it to be the best message I've ever given. And so I'll fast. And, and I'll fast for like a week and, and pray and seek God to show up. And then now I show up, and I'm like, all right, Lord, I fasted. I, I did right. You know, I got up early. I prayed. So you owe me. Like, show up and bless me. I fasted. And then usually what happens is I'm so weak I can't talk because I haven't eaten in a week. And, I'm like, and the message stinks anyways. But, but again, the, the idea, and I get it, like, because we're supposed to do those things. Like, I want to do those things. If I have, you know, something coming up, I would love to do everything big in my life to prepare with fasting and praying and seeking God and doing those things. But I, still, I understand that I have to get away from the idea that God blesses me because of good performance. I want to tell you something. God blesses you in spite of you. God blesses you because he's good. Listen, you're not good. And God doesn't bless you because you behaved this week. And, and, and if we live in that economy, none of us want to live in the opposite economy. That God blesses me when I'm good and he kills my dog when I'm bad. Like none of us want that. And, and so again, like I, I, I struggle because, right, because I want to do good. God's word tells me to do things, to, to behave, to be obedient. And, and yet when I'm doing well and I'm behaving and I'm being obedient, and I start to stick my chest out, you know, and I start to think, oh, well, you know. You know, you know danger for, for preachers too. And I'm always in my head while I'm talking to you guys in the back. Like if I'm saying something and I feel like the Holy Spirit is there and it's going good, in my mind I'm thinking, dang, I'm preaching good right now, man, you know. As soon as I entertain that thought, I lose my train of thought, I can't think, the next thing won't come out of my mouth, right, and it gets all real awkward in here really quick, and it was just that little thought in my head, oh man, I'm preaching so good right now, so I never, and I think that thought from time to time, and when I do, I'm just, shut up, no, it's not, it's not you, it's Jesus, you're not doing nothing, you're a donkey, and he's speaking through you, so stay a donkey, stay a turnip, stay a turd, and just, just keep letting God talk, and that's the truth, right, and that's why.